Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Becco and my partner, Hari. Hello. Welcome, everybody. This is episode, let's see, let's see. What's the episode number? 83, 82, 83. Sorry about that. Yeah. 82, this one. And then we'll record 83 right after this one. Wow. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been almost a year or over a year since we started this. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel, Harry? Good, good. I mean, we, we get emails every week from people uh, saying yeah. how much they like it and what they'd want to see on the podcast. So we're very excited to do that. And, you know, we have a Slack channel available that uh, people are messaging us and giving us feedback. Yeah. So we're really happy about that. And, uh, yeah. you know, if you haven't gotten access to it, you can always email us info at valueinvestor.org and we can uh, uh, hook you up. Um, yeah, we can, we can set you up. With, you set you up with the Slack channel for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's it's uh it's been really fun, you know, starting this, and now we're you know we're into the 80th, 80, 82nd, 83rd episode. So uh, on our way to 100 shortly. Um. So before we start on the today's episode, can you give us a disclaimer, quick? Yeah. Uh, so. This is the Value Investor TV podcast. We are a podcast that helps you understand how value investing works and the principles behind it. Uh, we are not your financial advisor. We don't know your financial situation. So if you are making uh, important financial or tax uh, discussions, you should have that with your the appropriate person. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, in this episode, um, you know, this is something... That, as I told, as I told you, Hari, before we started this podcast, uh, this is something kind of personal for me. Um, you know, when we were working together, uh, we would have these sort of one-off conversations over lunch or just, you know, reading through code together. We would, you know, we would have these one-off conversations about what's happening in today, today's newspaper, uh, you know, anywhere ranging from politics to business to any opinion piece, things like that. So, I wanted to uh, take the opportunity here in this in this podcast to maybe do that since we no longer work with each other with each other uh, physically. I thought this uh, this might be a good venue and opportunity to do that and maybe share with our audience our thoughts on various various news that's that's uh, that's uh, swirling around us uh, today. So. We picked a couple of a uh, couple of articles from Wall Street Journal to talk about it. Uh, talk about in this episode. Um, first, we'll talk about kind of the Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, the the ever growing mountain of cash that they're hoarding, uh, and the problems that is associated with that, and how we think about it from value investor. We'll talk about that first, and then the second article we will talk about is uh, just. Um, you know, this is something that we constantly talk about in our in our evaluation of companies. But Wall Street Journal article recently published uh, talked talked about this, and that is when companies go through hard times, uh, they tend to split the CEO and chairman role. When the times are good, uh, you know, it tends to be it tends to be one single person that serves both as a CEO and also as a chairman. But uh, the article talked about um, when times are tough, companies split chairman and CEO roles. In fact, that's exactly the title of the article. When things get tough, 
comma, company split chairman, comma, CEO roles. So we'll talk about that uh, after the Berkshire Hathaway. Cool. Uh, Hari, let's uh, just jump jump right in. I think this is going to be more of a casual kind of conversation between you and I. Yeah. Uh, the first, you know, first article, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, the, the article titled Berkshire Hathaway's Cash Pile Hits a Record. This is a Wall Street Journal article that was published this weekend, November second. Uh, what, what's your what's your thought on uh, on this? Um, you know, maybe if I could just give listeners some color. Um, their cash reserved, Berkshire Hathaway cash reserve hit a hundred and twenty billion dollars in cash for short term treasury as of September September thirtieth. Um, so, what, what's your kind of take on this uh, ever growing mountain of cash? Uh, in Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I don't follow Berkshire Hathaway all that closely as a company because I won't invest in it. Um, I mean, I, I think it's always interesting to l- listen to what Warren Buffett has to say. And, uh, you know, Becco and I went to the annual meeting two years ago. We didn't get a chance to go this year, but um, so I guess that was 2018 that we went, but we didn't go in 2019. Um, but I hope to go in 2020. Um, you know, and, and Buffett actually talked about that even two years ago because he had this large cash pile. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about Buffett and Munger, and I've read every annual report uh, and every chairman letter since, uh, you know, they've been public. Um, and, you know, he's remarkably consistent, right? He will sit on money and cash until he finds companies that he can, he can buy. And, you know, when he was had a hundred million dollar company, um, you know, in the '60s, it was a very different uh, ball game than trying to uh, hunt down uh, at when you have a hundred, you know, or, or I guess it's more like a four hundred billion dollar company. You have all this cash. If he went and bought a five hundred million dollar market cap, it has no impact on the bottom line or no, you know, impact on what's going on uh, to the Berkshire. Um, uh, shareholders. So he's going to have to look for big companies and big companies that he has bought in the past, like Precision Cast Parts um, and uh, the railroad that I'm escapes escapes me uh, right now. Uh, is it BNSF? Burlington Northern? Yeah, yeah Burlington Northern, BNSF. Um, these were, you know, very, very large purchases, you know, in the multiple, you know, tens of billions of dollars. And he makes these purchases because he is able to, uh, he's probably one of the few people who's able to do this, right? So the thing that he says a lot is he has to compete with um, private equity firms. So private equity firms will leverage up. So for those of you who don't understand how they operate, they will take, uh, Toys R Us is one I've mentioned many times in the podcast. Um, A company bought Toys R Us and they actually went to the bank and said, we will leverage up Toys R Us's bank balance sheet in order to, uh, so all of this money that uh, we are going to take out to purchase Toys R Us to pay off the current owner of the company, um, we will leverage up, take out a, a big loan from the bank or from a bond or some other you know vehicle, and use that money to pay for the investment. Um, and then that money will be paid off over time. Now, what happens usually is private equity firms do this, then they fire a bunch of people, you know, reduce the value of the business, and then try and sell it. You know, it'll look 
polish it up for a couple of years, but won't really invest in the company anymore. And then they'll say, oh, look how much more profitable we've made it, which they haven't actually done. And then they sell it off. So Buffett doesn't do that, right? Buffett walks in and he says, you have an ongoing concern that makes so much money. I can estimate what it's worth. And I want somebody to run that business because I don't want to be in charge of running it. <clears throat> and so he'll pay them some amount of money and it may, and he's going to be very um, strict about how much he spends. Um, and a private equity firm can take a bunch of debt uh, and pay, you know, more than, um, you know, what, uh, what Buffett does. Um, and eventually that company may go, go under or what have you. So, a lot of what we see with this is Buffett has a very small amount number of companies that he can buy. Those companies that he can buy are very expensive because of interest rates and other you know factors. And he's only looking at the very best companies. And typically, the very best companies charge you know uh, get a premium in the market. Um, and so I think that's yeah. why we're seeing him sitting on cash for so long is that. It's it has nothing to do with oh the market is expensive or whatever, you know I that's this is my opinion I I mean he I, he I don't as far as I know he has not said anything like this, he just there isn't you know whales to hunt at this you know at this size that he can afford right he he's going to have a very strict set of criteria and he's willing to let deals go by um, because a private equity firm will pay more and he has a cap. Yeah, exactly. I think a couple of things that you mentioned there, I do want to kind of mention one more time. In terms of private equity, I think that was one thing that you mentioned. And then the other thing is there's only so many of them that Berkshire can buy that is going to make any any dent in their portfolio because they're basically managing in the hundreds of billions. So buying you know $50 million company is is not going to do anything for them. Yep. Just yeah, just the sheer size of Berkshire Hathaway. So 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 there's those are two the two kind of separate but related threads that you mentioned there. One thing about you know private equity firms and kind of the leverage buyout kind of strategy is that it is inherently short termism. Yep. Right. Uh, you're looking at leverage buyout. You're looking for some sort of exit liquidation opportunity in the next three to five years. That's kind of how. They operate. So with that in mind, with that constraint and kind of angle, with that angle of, of approach, then you tend to have this short termism. So that's why you leverage up and then you dump it at the end of five years and you make handsome profit and then you walk away. Whereas Buffett, to your point, Hari, is much more long term, long termism. And that's where, you know, value investor kind of thinking about it as as the owner of the business that's how that you know that that is in contrast to what uh, private equity firms do. To your point, all right. And, and one one other thing that you mentioned these the second thread, just just the sheer size of that, the sh just the sheer size of of company that they that Berkshire requires to make any dent in the portfolio. To me, that's pr I mean that's pretty. I mean, when when the when the amount of money. Is like you're you're surpassing like nine digit, ten digit, eleven yeah. digit. To me, it's all like just blob of money. Like right. for me, I, I I just can't even fathom what that looks like. It's just many many zeros after a million, and then just more money. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, and I I think just you know, going back to that short term, long term, right? The way that we try to emphasize that 
to you all is short-term people care about the price, long-term people care about the cash flow, right? So the cash flow is how Buffett makes money off of his businesses. And a, a short-term person will think about the price of the business, and that's the only thing that they care about. So it's easy to manipulate things in the short term to you know one or two years, but imagine if you stopped capital expend expenditures, you stopped spending on the things that needed to maintain the business, let alone grow the business. You may have you may get a tailwind from previous investment, right? So the company prior to that purchase has invested in marketing, has invested in uh, infrastructure, has invested in keeping things up. And then they slowly let that go away. And I mean, I, I don't know if you shopped at Toys R Us before they, they closed down, but you could see that, right? Toys R Us was a profitable business, um, but they didn't have any advertising. They didn't have any mind share, right? It, it, for a long time, it was just fading on the the idea of you know it being around. And it wasn't until I had kids that I even went back into the store since I was a kid, you know? Um and going in there, I was like, wow, this is a really great store. It has all these toys that I couldn't find anywhere else, but nobody knows about it. They didn't do any of that investing. And so you slowly, you know, all that momentum that you build up is is what you coast off of. And then eventually it just catches up with you. And that's essentially what happens with a lot of these private equity business deals is they have to exit because if they don't exit, then it's going to, le the leverage is going to end up hurting them. And so what they try and do is, pay off the debt or they'll sell it after they've loaded up on the debt, they'll sell it to someone else who's now it's their debt problem instead of the private equity firm. So yeah, yeah just kind of pulling on that thread a little bit more on, on their strategy because the strategy hinges on, you know, this kind of leverage and leveraging up to juice up their bottom line or free cash flow. I wonder in the, in the kind of stepping back and thinking about it from kind of macro environment perspective, in the era of low interest rates, you know, private equity firms, what do you think about, you know, the success of private equity firms in the, in the, you know, in the era of very low interest rate? Because, because their strategy is so tied to levering up, uh, they might find it easier to pursue that strategy because of the ease of of lending environment oh yeah what it, do you think about that they are they're able to get more cash much easier and they are also able to justify higher valuations because of the low interest rates right and so you know in their mind it's free money except inherently what you're doing is harming the actual engine that generates the cash flow that you would use to then pay down the debt right and so Heavy, heavily leveraged companies, uh, like we've talked about companies like Kraft yeah. and, and others Both of, yeah. that have tons of debt where effectively they're paying off, you know, a third or half of their earnings are just going, you know, their operating revenue is going to, or operating profit, I should say, is going to uh, interest payments. Right? Yeah, just purely interest payments. And Forget it, about principal. Yeah. And at that point, really, who owns the business? I, I would say the debtors own the business. Yeah, right? the banks, the banks, yeah. and the bondholders, and the you know everybody else. So, I, I I see a lot of people levering up. You know, it, the balance sheets in the early two thousands were a lot cleaner than they are today, um, and we are seeing a lot of businesses that levered up to do dumb things. You know, essentially pay dividends. 
to, uh, you know, if you ever see a company borrow money to pay a dividend, you should just avoid it. I mean, it, that, that yeah. should be an immediate red flag. Um, but they're borrowing things, borrowing money at the peak of the stock price to pay back or, or to buy back shares. You know, that, that's another thing. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where they say, oh, this is a shareholder friendly thing. Well, <clears throat> if you're indeed doing that, I, I mean, I think GNC is the best example that I can think of right now. You know, they borrowed, you know, over a billion dollars to buy back shares when their stock price was at $60 a share. They they did the buyback uh, and then the stock price cratered to like three, three, two, three dollars a share. And so oh did their free gosh. cash flow. And so now it's a question of can they survive with meager free cash flow and pay off, you know, their debt? And yeah. who's going to loan the money at this point when, you know, they have already a bunch of debt and meager, you know, and declining free cash flow. So, yeah. um, you know, I, it, who is who does the borrowing, whether it's private equity or not, it really doesn't matter. You know, it's you still owe this money. I mean, imagine if you have student loan payments, right? You're inability to get a house or your inability and we're seeing this amongst you know uh people in their 20s and 30s they're unable to get a house because they're they have two hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt well it's no different for a company right you're having to spend all your money to pay off interest payments uh and you know and you're not even really making much of a dent in the principal right and that that's that's fundamentally the problem here yeah exactly and just one more comment on this before we move on to the next article. Yeah. I recently read a book uh, and I posted the book in our Slack channel. I'm forgetting the name of it. It's something to do with uh, private debt. And this is something that uh, one of my coworkers recommended. And it basically talks about how private debt is the cause of the cyclical nature of our economy. You, you go up and then you come down uh, this private debt and uh, I think a good example of how private debt really is just hurting the engine you talked about, like the core engine, and how that's, you know, at, at just explicit display is Japan. Yep. If you look at Japan, the private debt per GDP, private debt to GDP, like it's like 250% or something like that. And US is below 150%. Right now, because Japan is basically have you know they have this mountain of debt on top of their shoulder 250 above 250% i don't know the precise number but it's very very high the country and all the all the economic engine that has to be revving up can't it's just not doing it because they're just so sag and and just you know cracking under the pressure and you, that's why you're seeing this long sagging um you know, long sacking performance of Japanese economy and Japanese companies for the past two decades. Yeah. And I think in the U S I've, I've seen numbers of, you know, private credit card debt and student loan debt or, you know, in the multi-trillion uh, dollar amounts now. And I mean, imagine that when you're trying to do anything, right. You know, <laughs> yeah. How, how, I mean, it, it, it I see this a lot with people, right, is, you know, they buy a car and they buy a new car, right, which is automatically more expensive than a, a, a non-new car, a like used car. And then they're also borrowing money to, to buy it, right? And so effectively, you, you nobody's saving anything because they are up to their eyeballs in debt and they're they're using leverage to even pay for things that, 
I mean, it, let's be honest. You, you don't need a new car, right? I don't care how much money you make. <laughs> you know, you can go buy a used one for and get a third off, you know, on the price, right? It, it, it And it comes, this, this applies to everything, right? You, you get a degree in, um, in something that you rack up $150,000 in debt. Well, you know, I, I have a medical degree and I have, I have that same problem, right? I, I mean, I have to pay it off. Now, fortunately in medicine, you can actually make real money and pay it off. But, you know, there are people who had, you know, you would say the same thing about law school or other things. It effectively does the same thing, right? It's, you have to be able to sacrifice for a long time to make, you know, to make money as a lawyer or as a doctor or as other things. Um, but you may not get there, right? You may burn out. You may have other things that come up um, and there's risks associated with it. So anyway, we can, we would be talking yeah. about this all day, but um, yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. I, I think just the last point I, I'll make is, you know, be very wary of these companies that are levering up, right? Anytime that they say they're going to borrow money to do something, just be wary of that because I, you know, the, any CEO will tell you and they'll tell publicly, yeah, we're borrowing money to do this. This is a great idea. Let me tell you why. Right. And you should always look at that and say, why don't you just do it with the free cash flow that you generate as a business? And if you can't, then maybe you shouldn't do it, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's end there uh, and move on to those are, those are really good points. Uh, there, Hari. So let's move on to the next article, which is uh, titled "When Things Get Tough: Companies Split Chairman CEO Roles." And this was uh, again Wall Street Journal article that was published November third. A subtitle from Boeing to WeWork: A record number of big U.S. companies are dividing their leadership roles, often after a crisis. So just uh, just. As as the subtitle highlighted, from Boeing to WeWork, uh, some companies I just want to mention: Boeing, AT and T, Wells Fargo, uh, Nike, Under Armour, and of course WeWork. Um, you know, I think you know we talk about this a lot in our podcast, Hari. The fact that when a single person CEO is also a chairman, except for certain situations it can be problematic because yep. the role of a chairman is to kind of oversee the executives. And if that person is one and the same, you have kind of a conflict of interest there. So yeah. So let, let's get your take on that. Yeah. Let's actually talk about what are the acceptable reasons that you would want to see a CEO and a chairman first. Sure. And then I think we can walk backwards and talk about why it's such a bad idea. Right. Yeah. So the reason, the only time that I would be okay with it is if the chairman actually owns a majority of the shares of the company. And the reason for that is you want a business, you want an owner of the business to be able to um, to invest alongside them, right? If they have a significant stake in the company, then decisions made at the board level and at the executive level should align, right? Because they are going to align to maximize shareholder profit, Right. And so what, what will happen in those situations is the CEO of the company will make the decision that not is not benefiting him personally, is benefiting everyone at the company, right? Now imagine the flip side here, which is you have a chairman who is brought in, 
who owns nothing in this in in this organization and he's also the ceo well the chairman of the board's job is to hire the ceo and is to pay the ceo right is to de- determine their incentive and compensation structure right mm-hmm. so what will happen in that situation is if i'm the chairman of the board and i'm the ceo well i'm just going to set the compensation to to suit me best right how am i going to profit out of this. I don't really care if the company wins because at the end of the day I make the most money, right? Now, yeah, and and they have minority stake, very very small stake in the company r- in right. your situation. Right. Now, if they had a if they bought their way in, right, into the company and bought a, a large stake in the company, then I'm totally fine with it, right? It doesn't even have to be a majority, it has to be a very large percentage of their net worth has to be in this organization. Because then they benefit from good decisions um, in their that their share price will increase, right? And that that is how everyone should be thinking, right? Is how do we align the incentives of the CEO uh, to do the right thing, right? We've used the example of the oil and gas companies where the the CEO says, "I want my incentive structure to be based on the number of barrels of oil that we pump." Well, at one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel, we make tons of money. At $40 a barrel, we lose money. But all I care about is pumping as many barrels of oil, right? So that that is a clear example where the chairman has a different con, uh, you know, uh, interest, interest than the CEO, right? And when, they're, when their interests are aligned, then it makes perfect sense, right? If that CEO owned a large percentage of that oil company, he would say, clearly, I don't want to pump oil at uh, as many barrels of oil at $40 a barrel, right? And so that 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 is how you kind of align everybody's incentives here, is if they own a big percentage of the shares, then they're going to do what will maximize their overall return, which is also maximizing the share price. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's all about incentive alignment, incentive alignment from all the way from top to bottom, right? top all the way from the board level to to ce to c-sweep and all the way down to employee level i think that's you know that's what's important here what's interesting about this article is the first it's basically the title when things get tough companies split chairman ceo roles you know it's interesting the incentive alignment has to happen when you know through the hard times or in good times and it seems like the article is pointing out that when things get tough Companies realize that well, maybe we should we need to look at incentive alignment and see everything is ironed out. What do you think about that part there, Hari? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I think what it tells you is that this is what I've seen a lot happen: is companies will encounter a rough patch, they'll fire their CEO, they'll bring in a new CEO, and what that CEO and they'll say, "You'll be the chairman of the company," right? And I think they said. Forty-seven percent of the S and P five hundred have dual role, chairman CEO, right? The other fifty-three percent have split, or have never had it in the past. I think was what the statistic said. So the, that what they're doing is they hire a CEO. CEO comes on and they say, "Well, we really like you. We want you to turn things around. What? Let's work together on making your incentives." you know, work, right? Now, a CEO is going to look at that and say, okay, I'm working at this new company. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make maximize my, you know, money, right? 
And so maybe you're already in a, in a hole because this is a business that's not doing well, right? So they bring in a CEO, they elevate his, you know, him to the CEO chairman role as the chairman, he sets his own compensation, right? And he's going to maximize his, his return for himself, not necessarily for the other. But what he will also do is actually, you know, board composition at uh, publicly traded firms actually turns over fairly quickly, right? People have to leave because of conflicts of interest or they're, you know, no longer able to for, you know, you know, work-related reasons, whatever it is. Um, and the, and people on the board typically get paid a lot of money. Now, if you're the chairman of the board, what you will do is you'll bring on people who are yes-men, right? Who will maximize yeah. your own compensation. And what you're seeing in this article is these were all people who were brought in as chairmans and CEO, dual role. And the board looks at them and says, you're trying to bring on your own people and you're not doing a good enough job. And that's why they're trying to split up the thing as if this is a good governance idea, right? But this is a good governance practice, whether things are good or bad, right? And and, and people shouldn't be thinking about this as a times are good or times are bad, so we should do this. It's what is the incentive of the CEO and the, and, and the chairman? Are they aligned? And if they're not aligned, then they should be separate roles, right? And that should yeah. be the only test that you have for, for this. Yeah, exactly. It, it it's not it's not when the times are tough you have to make those decisions. It's every every time. Yeah. It's every year, every review cycle, you have to make sure as the board responsibility is to make sure that the C-suite and the board incentive is 100% aligned with the shareholders. And I think it's, you know, kind of fiduciary, op, you know, obligation for the board to look after shareholders and to maximize shareholder returns and if they don't do that that's exactly opposite of what they're sh what they should be doing yeah um, just to just to just for the record um in 2019 so this year s&p 500 uh percentage of companies in the s&p 500 index with a separate ceo and chairman is 53 percent the lowest uh the graph is available in wall street journal uh, goes all the way back to 2005, and at that time it was 30%, and has been steadily going up. Okay, um, anything to add to this episode, Hari? I think those two were the ones that we wanted to cover in this in this episode. No, um, I think uh, you know, I think if you're interested in topping, you know, uh, uh, discussing any of these topics, you know. We'd be happy to chat about them on Slack uh, or send us an email either way. Um, or if you find another article unrelated to these and you want to, you know, bring it up, uh, Becco and I post things in the Slack channel all the time and then we'll have discussions and whoever wants to join in is, is more than welcome to. We always like hearing other people's opinions. So, yeah. Yeah. Email us at info at value uh, to get that Slack invitation uh, or just email us if you have any questions. Awesome. Thanks guys for tuning in. We'll see you guys in the next episode. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm.